All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Dean St. Mark. How are we doing, man? I'm very good, Dave. Thanks for, for inviting me on. I'm, I'm very privileged to have been asked. Absolutely. Yeah, no, very, very glad to get you on here. Um, so we'll, we'll dive into your background and everything. But as with all episodes, we start with a charity donation. And the one people have probably heard me mention the most is Operation Smile. They help children with cleft lip and palate surgeries. And so there's always a link below for anybody who wants to contribute. Obviously, I have a dental background. And so I've done most of the work with them. Um, and, you know, I'm glad to continue to support them. So you have a PhD in organic chemistry. And we were just chatting a little bit about how you work basically as an engineer. And I have seen you more recently in the last probably one to two years. I've seen you pop up more. I've seen other people reference you on, on there. I forget. I might have even seen you mentioned on a forum. Um, but let's just give a little bit of background if somebody hasn't heard of you about how you get on into this space. Uh, yeah. So I, like you said, I'm Dr. Dean St. Mart. I have a PhD in synthetic organic chemistry. And my background in terms of my undergrad was chemistry and pharmaceutical chemistry. So basically pharmacology and, and drug design. After the, the degree, I pursued uh, synthetic chemistry because it's just, just a huge passion of being able to synthesize, you know, new drugs and being able to apply this wonderful chemistry to progress mankind. But um, I started to realize that when we look at, you know, conventional medicine and even conventional science, when we're looking at drug design, it's always we've got a set of symptoms and let's target drugs to those symptoms. It, it was never really taught upon when, when I was doing my research anyway, or when I was sitting in on research groups from the chemistry department of we've got, for example, say diabetes, diabetes drugs are there to either manage blood glucose issues or to help the pancreas. It's never to go to the root cause of why the diabetes started in the first place. We're always just trying to improve patient lifestyles with, with medication. And I started to become a little uh, disjunct from that sort of thought process. And that's where I started to get more into looking at functional medicine. And at the time I was bodybuilding and I started to see even, you know, even in the realm of bodybuilding, pharmacology of bodybuilding some of the stuff that was being said there wasn't even correct science and how we bodybuilders were looking at their health overall wasn't really that um functional so when i finished my phd i had no real desire to go into pure science and uh, chemical research more so for the fact that you know you're chasing funding and you're you're trying to we don't have the problem in Europe with like tenure of getting a space. You can mm. basically get your own space in a university fairly easy, provided you get continuous funding. And I just seen during my, my PhD that, you know, my two supervisors were constantly chasing after governing bodies to get more money to keep the labs going. And you could tell that even their passion for science was dwindling a little bit mm. because it was just trying to keep your head above water. And so I moved into chemical engineering with, with Intel. And I, I stayed there for eight years. And, and during that time, that was sort of when my passion into functional medicine and like functional pharmacology really developed. And that was, that was to support my own bodybuilding journey. And five years ago, um, a friend of mine, he, he started a, a supplement company. And so 
I had already been, you know, looking at how you can use functional medicine to say support sleep. You know, what's the mechanisms behind why we fall asleep and stay asleep? Uh, what are some of the nutritional components, supplement components that we can use rather than, you know, going the pharmacology aspect of basically you've got these GABA receptors in your brain that tell your brain to calm down and, and shut off, which is what, you know, a lot of sleep medicines work on. But it basically just tells your brain to switch off. You don't actually go to the process of sleep. Mm-hmm. And for me, with such a high-end job and high-stress job, adding bodybuilding on top and prepping for bodybuilding shows, I had to figure out how to support my sleep with doing, you know, day shifts and night shifts alternating. So you, you had like shifty rotations that you couldn't turn around to your boss and go, well, I didn't sleep too good during today for tonight shift and then something breaks down and it's running at say like a two and a half million dollar an hour production rate that every second is you know thousands of thousands of dollars being wasted right so that that was where i started to delve into you know how we can use supplements to address um health issues from a functional perspective and that then i guess branched into how can i support bodybuilders health and that's sort of where I probably became a bit more familiar in that space of trying to educate bodybuilders on when they use say anabolic steroids, we've become synonymous and obviously this sort of stigma of anabolic steroids cause heart disease, but it, it really, it's not as simple as that sort of mindset within the general population. If you take steroids, you're going to die of a heart attack. Sure. There's all these other processes underneath and other functional aspects that, there's lifestyle management, nutrition management, antioxidant supplementation. All these things play into the, the, the bigger picture that anabolic steroids probably set the, the scene for you to have cardiovascular disease at some point in your life. But it's the other aspects that sort of augment that process. And it's getting to that functional medicine thought process of trying to get bodybuilders to think, well, if this is the root cause of why this disease happens, how can I put plans in place to protect myself and protect my future health from the choices I'm going to make with this sort of lifestyle? So that's obviously, again, with, with supplement needs, I started to look at, you know, a liver stack, a kidney and blood pressure stack, a heart stack, looking at <clears throat> ingredients within the literature that had a good efficacy at the correct dosages in order to... Um, keep male it was more so for male bodybuilders but it's now sort of branching into the female realm as well mm. of how i can keep these guys um healthy with with their choices and hopefully you know save some lives where guys aren't dying prematurely in their, their late 30s early 40s from silly mistakes they might make in their 20s right yeah it, it is interesting to see you know how things have shifted and so when i i mean like i mentioned before the podcast i've been lifting forever Um, but I was really interested in going like, you know, I have no, I guess, like allegiance to people who are just like forever natural. And they, they have this like pride about it. Like, I don't really care. Um, for me, it's just a health thing. Like, I just wouldn't want to go down that route. I think there's a lot of, um, emotion that goes into most people's decision to get on anabolics and that they don't think about the consequences long-term. So that is my biggest reason, you know, but if somebody's like, Hey, here's a supplement slash whatever that had no side effects and would put on 10 pounds of muscle, I'm not going to be like, no, no, no. Like, you know, that's just not. So, um, 
but but to me, I just think most people don't think about it, right? And they they jump on very early. Um, they don't push themselves. Like I've seen pictures of you naturally, and you got very far, right? I mean, you, you had a, an impressive physique. Yeah, I mean, before even that realm, um, my sort of natural off season weight got up to two hundred and twenty five pounds. So, oh. and like I mean, I could I could deadlift. Uh, 200 kilos, I could squat 200 kilos, do anything that I'm rubbish at and always have been rubbish at is bench pressing or mm-hmm. pre- any sort of pressing. I could I could press, um, what was the most I've ever done? Uh, 65, 150 kilos, so whatever that is in pounds, maybe 300 and something pounds, is it? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, proportionally, though, I think that's pretty good. I mean, this was all around the same time and this is when you were natural, you were saying? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, that sort of follows, it's sort of an old school mentality, but it's always like, you know, bench three plates, squat four plates, deadlift five plates was right. sort of what, what right. the old school method of was of, you know, how far you can test your natural strength limit for the average person. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. And so like, th- this is another thing that I, you know, I, I became notorious, but I was like speaking openly about, um, just not even the idiocy, but just the complete lack of science behind what's being prescribed. And prescribed is the right term to use with what's being said online. Guys are being told, take this amount yeah. of drugs. It's it's never rooted in science. And I mean, you know, even for someone who's looking to enter into this realm, there's never a consideration towards where like their natural testosterone level is, even to begin with. Mm. So you could have someone who's, um, for example, the top end of the, the natural scale. So for us, it's like 30, 32 nanomole, which I think is about a thousand nanograms per deciliter right. for the US measurement. They, they'll never, ever have their blood work done to see where they sit naturally. And then they'll listen to some arbitrary person online and say, I'll oh, take 500 milligrams of testosterone. Mm-hmm. Now, that level in terms of plasma um level achievement of testosterone from that dose uh, could be somewhere around 150 nanomoles so that's like five times their natural production now if we take someone who's on the opposite end of the spectrum who's potentially technically hypogonadal and their, their test level is maybe 10 nanomole which is like 380 nanograms per deciliter if they take the same dose of 500 milligrams and their test level goes to 150 that's 15 times what they're making naturally. It just, it didn't make sense to me that we should be, you know, like anything, it should be a personal protocol if that's what way we want to, to call it. But it should be an intelligent basis that if, if this is a choice that someone's going to make, the obvious thing or solution to do here is take what you make naturally and either double or triple it and see what happens and assess what benefits come from it or what side effects come from it? Is it, you know, is it really what you think it's going to be? Because, you know, you, you, you often see arguments that dose for someone who's at the very top of the natural range at 30 nanomole, that might take them to, to 90 nanomole, which would be like, I don't know, 400 milligrams, 350, 400 milligrams. They might view that as a low dose compared to what's being said to them online. But, by going to that sort of triple or natural level, they're able to assess, you know, in a controlled manner, what is happening 
um, I guess, from a, a biochemical basis and also from a, I guess, metabolic perspective so that they're not creating too much estrogen, they're not creating too much DHT. What are the mental side effects? Because it influences how our brains operate and our neurochemistry. We take that same approach for someone who's at the very bottom and they're sitting at eight nanomol. If we triple their natural testosterone level, it falls at 24 nanomol, which is effectively still within that natural range. It's somewhere around 800 nanograms per deciliter, 900 nanograms. Mm-hmm. If that person was to say to some, oh, I'm doing a steroid cycle, and they go, yeah, what are you taking? And he turned around and said, oh, 100, 125 milligrams of testosterone, they'd be laughed at. Right. But, you know, they've, again, the sort of opposite spectrum, they've tripled their natural testosterone to, to 24 nanomole from eight. If, if they can't progress with triple the amount of testosterone in their plasma, that might not necessarily mean there's triple the amount of free testosterone, but we've tripled the amount of testosterone in your body. You're still within the natural range. And if you're turning around saying that I don't have greater nitrogen retention or greater DHT in my body and, and all that sort of stuff that comes with it, then did you really push yourself when you were a natural in terms of the other optimization of nutrition, recovery, sleep, training, volume, et cetera. And that's, that's where I've sat and been devil's advocate of trying to show people that we can't be taking these generic prescriptions that it has to be centered around that person's biochemistry. And if anything with that first exposure, it it literally is a a test in the water of doubling or tripling the level and, and allowing that person to assess, is this for me, rather than going straight in at like 10, 15 times their natural level, where it just becomes this hormonal mess. Right. Yeah, it, it's, I agree. I'll, so I'll play devil's advocate to that. And then I'll kind of see where I mostly agree with you. So like, I can understand why there are these blanket prescriptions, because if you look at in medicine, right, a lot of the time, it is just a blanket recommendation. You had breast cancer from our 2.5 milligrams every day, right? Yeah. You have an infection, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, three times a day, et cetera. Um, even it, it, like from biologics, right? Like vetaluzumab for ulcerative colitis, 300 milligrams every eight weeks. So these are oftentimes not based on the individual and that's just how they're studied. And that could just be due to ease of use, right? Because it's probably just easier for these companies to do that. Um, but with that said, I think logically based on what you're saying, like, why wouldn't you, especially, I mean, most of these people are not getting it from a doctor, unfortunately, but whether you are or not, why wouldn't you just be a little bit more patient? And I think patience is the big thing here, right? Where just, you could titrate it up and see how you feel. And, and going back to the emotional aspect I mentioned earlier, I think of when I was in college and, you know, I had a few friends taking some things and it's like, I need 10 pounds now versus like me having lifted for 18 years. If I was going to go that route, I'd probably love to say, okay, hundred milligrams, then maybe 150 maybe, because I'm so used to nothing happening, <laughs> you know, but I think yeah. when you're young, you just like, I need it all now. Yeah. And that, that, that is another big issue we face in today's environment. Like you said, with young people not taking the time or being naive to the, to the negative aspects or the health consequences and more so, you know, I, I keep saying this and it's sort of becoming a, a not a boring thing to say, but social media is becoming a, a sort of onslaught of people seeing other people's progress and going, 
oh, he must take that when, you know, it might not be the reality, but they're looking again for this instant gratification of, I need that 10 pounds of tissue right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole empirical dose that you said there, that is funny. If you read into the research, there's, there's a really nice paper from, I think it's 2010 uh, by, uh, uh, I think it's a woman, Chella is her second name. And they go into uh, why we sort of do this sort of dosing of milligram per kilogram dosing within a, a medical basis. Obviously for, you know, pediatrics is another area where milligram per kilogram or standardized dosing is, is set. And she, she basically like breaks it down as like almost laziness that we have mm. this way of, you know, being theoretical in our approach towards pharmacology from a, a chemistry perspective and the number of molecules in a certain dose and whatever else. And we can do that from a, a I guess, a, an individual patient perspective, but from a time management, if you've got like hundreds of patients to see, it's, it's oh, very yeah. easy to just go right, 500 milligrams, three times a day, there's your prescription instead of sitting down and working out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure. That body weight is so many molecules and so many receptors. And even then, you know, you get down into body weight itself we, we don't have a correlation and more body weight means more receptors in the body so more drug is needed it just comes down to the to the standard prescription and you know that's sort of where i guess i'm trying to come come at the pd realm again from that that functional sort of thought process of let's let's do this in a as logical way as possible that's a controlled environment where we can then understand when a problem arises during that, I guess, testing period um, allows that person to understand, well, going forward, if they go in with such a huge dose and there's just a huge generation of even, for example, estrogen, um, that, again, might be just from a genetic perspective that had they started slowly, like you said, and you move the dose up slower and slower, you then come to a point where potentially that aromatase conversion is happening at a, a higher constant rate that if they had to enter that low level, they might not have even noticed that side effect. So yeah, it's, there, there's just pros and cons to, to both, definitely. Yeah. Do you think there's something to be said for, you know, sometimes I'll see research and it's, it's research that a lot of times I see naturals focus on that they say, hey, within the physiological range, you know, it, it doesn't make much of a difference, which I think is flawed, as you already said. Uh, but do you think there is something to be said for Getting above that range, the reason I ask is because I have clients who are on TRT and oftentimes we see these reports where they're in the normal range and maybe they started at 300 nanograms per deciliter and they say, my libido is higher, I feel better, but I really haven't noticed much, if any, increase in muscle mass. Whereas almost nobody does like a legitimate cycle and says, well, I'm just not gaining any muscle. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but you don't see that much. So do you think there's something to be said for just getting over a certain number? I guess, you know, we can't deny with, with androgens, there, there is, you know, we've, we've done the quote-unquote research with the likes of Bashan et al. That, you know, as we have a dose response, as you increase the dose of testosterone, more muscle mass is gained to a point you know, I don't think they've ever gone beyond 600, 700 milligrams in, in a controlled environment towards testosterone exposure. For someone who's on like true physiological TRT, again, it comes back to their genetic baseline, like I said. So if, if this TRT is a true mimic that um, 
prior to potentially being hypogonadal, so whether that's secondary from the brain or primary from the testes, if that TRT dose is mimicking exactly where they sort of developed during adulthood, then I don't think you're going to see anything crazy beyond what, what probably would have happened naturally without the TRT. Mm-hmm. It's when you start taking that example of, like I said, someone who was, um, pri- I guess, primary hypogonadism has occurred and their, their test level was, say, 8 nanomol, which is like 300 nanograms roughly. If their TRT prescription of like 100, 125 milligrams, which is sort of standard TRT 125 to 150, if that level now has brought them from 300 to, you know, 7, 750, which is still in the physiological realm, there's now, like I said, triple the exposure, triple the level of testosterone present. So now we have more androgen receptors being activated versus when they were natural. We've higher potential rates of DHT formation, so the nervous systems being nourished you know, uh, tensile strength within the nervous system is, is improved. That's when you start to see that they're within this physiological realm before they're given genetics of where they developed during life. It's actually super physiological exposure. And it, this is what I'm trying to get guys to view that even if you're on controlled TRT and you're still in this physiological realm, if your previous physiological baseline, you know, is, is down at that sort of 308 nanomole region, and now you're being pushed up, you know, double or triple where you sort of sat naturally all your life, there's cause to then even caution that you are, quote unquote, on a super physiological dose of androgens, even though you're within the physiological range. Right. And that, that becomes a very great area going forward that, you've now tripled that person's exposure to their natural testosterone. So is that the same sort of risk to health as, say, someone who is in the physiological range naturally? Um, this is where I'm getting at with the sort of high-end natural range of 30, and now they're using 500 milligrams and they've gone to 90 or 120. They've again tripled the amount of testosterone being exposed to their body. So is the, the health risk akin between the 24 nanomole where they've tripled it from a low level to the 30 that they've tripled it to 90 or 100. So this this is something that I've seen, you know, no comparative research on, but from a, a theoretical basis, it's it's definitely something that people need to be aware of, even going down the, the path of hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Do you, so what do you suspect the answer is? Because I mean, to be honest, I would suspect that it's not the same. I, I would have a hard time believing somebody who's bringing their levels up from 200 to 600 is going to have the same health issues as somebody going from 900 to 2,700. And that, that again, and that comes down to, I believe the same there based on the fact that from a number of molecules perspective, you've just a huge dose. So obviously when we, when we look at dose in terms of molecular number and then molecular interactions, that higher dose has far greater volume of molecular interactions to the lower dose. And those molecular interactions then happen elsewhere in the body. So that's where the, the health dysfunction comes from anabolic steroid use is when these androgen receptors in tissue outside skeletal muscle become activated and cause gene transcription that leads to potential skews in their, their lipid metabolism. So their cholesterol gets skewed. 
or their, their liver metabolism and how their, their liver enzymes turn over or how they, um, I guess, excrete, metabolize uh, xenobiotics or, you know, exogenous compounds from their body. That, yes, the higher dose, in theory, is more androgen receptor activations than the, the controlled, you know, lower physiological dose. But still interesting to me that, um, that's assuming that then that when you triple that person's natural testosterone level, that that full tripling of that amount of testosterone results in all that testosterone just going to skeletal muscle cells as well. So it's yeah, you know, it's 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 so broad that it's never been studied. Yeah, but it's definitely it's definitely a conversation that people need to to understand, especially with how mainstream trt and hormone optimization is becoming within society now that you you have guys who are who are utilizing trt to improve quality of life and that's amazing but there's never you know it's it's always viewed that okay your test is within this sort of green bracket on your your blood work so my health is going to be you know it shouldn't be the same as someone who's on cycle and what what i'm trying to get around is that may not be exactly the case depending on sure. that that baseline exposure and then where that higher dose is going in the body yeah now it's, it's very i've never heard anybody else really frame it like that i'm trying to think if physiologically i can think of anything else where that would be the case like for instance if somebody naturally had an ldl of 50 right i, I don't think somebody who had an ldl of 150 you'd then say, well, if they bumped it up to 150, it'd be the same as the other person bumping it up to 450, right? Like there is, yeah. it seems like physiologically there are these, I don't want to say absolute numbers, but a range where we do seem to function best. Um, but again, I love the critical thinking and like just because nobody's really, as far as I know, kind of phrased it like that. Like maybe there's something to it, even if it's not a literal three times or whatever. Yeah, because where this sort of thought process actually started to, to dawn on me was, um, I started to see a lot of sexual dysfunction in guys who had recovered their HBTA post anabolic use. Mm. So we're, we're talking going from a, a super high, super physiological level of testosterone and recovering the hypothalamus and pituitary and testicle back to where it was prior to exposure. Blood work looks absolutely perfect. So their LH and FSH, the luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone are optimal again, their blood work. So it's back to where it was baseline. So we know that the, the production of their fertility hormones is optimal in the brain. And the testes are responding appropriately by making the same amount of testosterone as they did prior to the exposure of that, that testosterone dose. But now we have sexual dysfunction in terms of... Um, loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, and loss of vitality to life, you know, loss of drive. And then we start to view that, you know, super physiological levels of androgens have other effects in the body and, you know, most notably towards neurochemistry. So while, you know, a guy goes on TRT and feels great and feels energized again, feels more driven, we know that, you know, the, the turnover of dopamine in the brain is associated with testosterone because we see that association on how, prolactin is manipulated by dopamine and obviously dopamine is manipulated by testosterone that post-use and um, we know that the neurons of our brain have an electrical potential so you've you've basically gone from a, a level where the brain has become so used to being stimulated 
by a, a high concentration of dopamine because of this high level of testosterone, that when that high level of testosterone has been ceased, the neuron's potential, the electrical potential of that neuron to operate isn't being achieved because of that lower physiological dose of testosterone. And now we have a brain that, for all intents and purposes, physiologically, the person's in perfect health in their blood work, but the brain, the electrochemistry, the brain is completely changed because of that, that neural sensitivity to that elevated hormone has changed. And that, in my mind, is probably one of the driving factors of, of androgen abuse. So mm. you, have, you have a young 22-year-old, 24-year-old who's, who's abused a steroid cycle, has had immense libido, uh, immense vitality of life, and then assist their cycle, recovered back to, to natural physiology. And now they're complaining to their general practitioner of, you know, they've no drive, no libido, very difficulty in waking up in the morning. But for all intents and purposes, their, their physiology from their blood work, the, the general practitioner is looking at it going, well, there's, there's nothing wrong. Your, your HPTA is functioning perfectly. The neurochemistry is completely changed. And that neural potential, we, we don't really have a, a time period on how long it takes for that um, neural threshold, that electrical potential of that neuron to relax back to where it was at the normal physiological level of testosterone. So now you have a person that views that when they were on cycle, they had amazing libido and amazing drive for life. And so the thought process that comes into the head is quite often I'm just going to go back using steroids because that yeah. had me feeling amazing. And it becomes this sort of perpetual cycle that you then get into the muddy waters of, is that, you know, the chemical substance dependency? Is it, you know, physical dependency? Is it, an, you know, there's just, it becomes very gray in that are these addictive substances from both a physical standpoint and an emotional standpoint. Um, sure. and, and it's, it's something that, I'm hoping, and if not, I, I would love to do some published controlled research on this. So it would have to be case studies. Um, but I've seen, you know, from private consultation as a, as a pharmacologist, uh, several guys who have come to me, and then when we've delved a little deeper into um, dry urinary testing, where we're looking at neurotransmitter metabolism in their urine, their, their levels of um, homo vanillae and the metabolites of dopamine and the other neurotransmitter serotonin are completely skewed and we're able to understand then that that low hormone uh, or what you could say is that normal low hormone environment because you're getting mixed you're getting muddied up here again because the person's back to where they were physiologically to begin with naturally but it's low for their body and their brain that the reversal of that neural potential electrical chemical signal takes just time to come back to where it was previously because it's not getting stimulated anymore that the the neurons um excitability calms down back to where it was when you were uh, i imagine at you would level. surmise that that is proportional to the amount of time that they were on it, it, it quite possibly would be any exposure to obviously the the elevated level of dopamine. So obviously the brain is seeking out this high level of dopamine. But the problem here then is we're in a society where dopamine driven behavior is quite high. 
So the, the brain is constantly getting stimulated to try and secrete dopamine from whether it's social media or, you know, pornography, all these sort of things that are muddied within general society that in order for that person's brain to calm down to where it was prior to that exposure, they have to try and abstain from dopamine-seeking behavior to allow the brain to stop secrete, try, well, trying to secrete dopamine as much as possible. And that, so, again, um, uh, just becomes a, a cycle where they, they're constantly flipping between being off, feeling not right, and their blood's being fine to going back on and having that sort of mental clarity and libido again. I imagine this is happening relatively quickly because, you, uh, you know, if you could imagine a situation if somebody jumps on at 20 years old and now they're 30, you see this sometimes with um, like finasteride, post-finasteride syndrome as well. And people say, well, things are so much worse. Well, it's, well okay, but you're also 10 years older. But it sounds yeah. like you're talking about in a shorter time frame, maybe even like a year uh, or uh, something. Yeah. I, I'm yeah, I'm talking like a year to a year and a half, depending on the length of exposure. So if someone has abused for a continuous length of time, without that sort of return to physiological level and uh, the, the dependency on that sort of neurochemistry i've seen it quite a lot and it's it's sort of almost um, an unspoken thing about in recent times it's it started to be termed um androgen steroid induced hypogonadism asih where all intents and purposes the person is operating uh, physiologically so the, the brain is making lh and lh perfectly fine again but the, the body or more so that the neurochemistry is being starved of androgens. So technically the brain is hypogonadal. Right. Right. Yeah. It's super interesting. And I guess I'm sure there's no real data out there, but maybe on in your experience, how long does it take people to get, do they ever get back to normal? So I've only had one, one sort of successful outcome where someone actually listened to me in this mm. regard to, to you know, abstain from from dopamine seeking behavior and to really correct that dysfunction, and and for that person, it took two and a half years before wow. they they regained uh, what you'd consider you know normal libido, normal sexual function, normal stimulation, sexual stimulation, because obviously, um, dopamine is sort of what drives sexual stimulation in the male. So when dopamine levels are high in the brain, that's when we get sexually aroused, mm-hmm. and then obviously we orgasm when a heat hits a peak. Um, for it, for this person, it, it took two and a half years of leading quite quite a boring life, and they wow. they admit you know they they admitted that you know that was a rough two two and a half years of you know trying to abstain from any sort of trill seeking behavior and just basically to understand that it's, it's not like neuroinflammation, but it's it's almost like you're trying to get the brain to to calm down and um allow that synapse signaling to operate at a lower threshold and that to me we we really understand um how cardiovascular disease impacts bodybuilders uh you know in terms of what androgen receptor activation or steroid use does towards their their lipoprotein and oxidative stress it's the it's the neurochemical sides that I think in the next sort of 10 years, 10 to 15 years with this sort of social media trend and what we're seeing happening now with young kids, like you said, where they're not, they're making irrational decisions. Uh, We will probably see like not a mental health crisis, but a crisis whereby these sort of uh, neural deficits become quite apparent within um, 
emergency medicine and, you know, general practitioner. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the most interesting aspects of it. And one of the things that would scare me the most, because, you know, obviously, like, I mean, you start to lose your mind and, and like your brain power and all of that. It's, it's very scary to think of going down that route. Um, I think the first paper I saw posted on that, I saw it a few years ago. I don't know how old it is, um, but it started to show, it was basically saying, you know, there was some brain damage or I, I don't want to misquote it. So I, maybe I'll link the paper. I'm sure you've seen it, but basically just saying that there was some damage in performance enhancing drug users. And that's scary to think about because we just don't know that much about it. It's not like, Hey, well, I can take a statin or I can take an ARB and I can kind of protect, you know, the cardiovascular system. I don't imagine that we have a lot of evidence for things to protect that. No, I think the only thing that we can maybe make uh, an assumption towards or a hypothesis towards is oxidative stress and protecting uh, neurons from being damaged by free radicals. And obviously the issue here is, um, if anyone doesn't realize, when you damage a neuron in your brain, you, we don't have neurogenesis. We, like we don't have neurodegenerate neurogeneration properties that when a, a neuron is effectively damaged, we can't repair it. What we end up happening, uh, ha- what ends up happening, is we have neural branching where your synapses, your your brain can basically start sending stems out from other neurons to try and make connections. So rather than having a higher number of neurons in the brain, you've got greater connections. So it's almost like you've got uh, five telephone lines and now one of them has has broke. So now you're branching, you know, telephone line one and two to try and take the same volume of calls that five would have taken. Uh, But it's still not at the same speed as if you had that free free telephone line that once that neurons um, effectively dysfunctional, it's, it's useless to the brain just ignores it and tries to branch off to try and send signals as fast as it can. Um, certain, you know, we, we've got very limited data towards uh, brain derived neurotropic factor BDNF. And, you know, that sort of became a, a hype thing within the, the supplement realm and, you know, the sort of supplement influencer online of, you know, take this supplement to increase right, BDNF right. and, people pushing the likes of lion's mane and you know ginkgo biloba stuff that we know have have what you could say mild uh, neural protection properties again they're acting as antioxidants they're just trying to protect the neuron from being damaged by superoxide or hydrogen peroxide whatever free radicals being made by our, our cells and that they're, they're really like like you said there really isn't anything that you can tell someone a you take this supplement every day if you're a steroid user and your brain's going to be fine. Right, um, right. And, and, you know, that paper that you said, it's, it's probably the same paper. It's, it's a case-controlled study where they, they done IQ tests between people who didn't take Nandrolone and people who did take Nandrolone. Mm-hmm. And they found the IQ that those who used Nandrolone was much lower than the, the non-users. Now, it's not the most uh, accurate in terms of study design because you could you can't say that these, I think it was six and six, that these 12 people are of, of equal intelligence prior to, to anabolic steroid exposure. So you could never, you can never control for all they were trying to test here was um, spatial awareness and spatial reasoning was, was different in the six people who used Nandrolone versus those who didn't. And yeah. we started to understand that 
Well, I was going to say, because like we've mostly talked about testosterone, but, and that obviously itself can cause problems, but I would imagine that some of these other drugs that people take, maybe it's even more so amplified. Yeah, we, we, we definitely see, um, there, there was one study, but again, it's, we don't have any human controlled studies. So what we really tend to try and rely on is, is animal models here to try and um, understand what happens in an, an animal model and what's the likelihood of extrapolating that same data to, to humans, which, you know, for the likes of rats, rabbits, are sort of case controlled animals um, with similar genetics, we're able to, to form hypotheses, but never ever say conclusively, you know, this is what's happening. But there's a paper that they studied, um, Baldenone or Equipoise or EQ, whatever way you want to call it, in, in rabbits. And we found uh, quite a large um, increase in oxidative stress towards oxidative stress markers in the blood. And um, correspondingly, then when you administer, you know, an antioxidant alongside Baldenone, you see this drop in oxidative stress as a, a protection strategy in, in quotes that we're, we're trying to offset some of that damage that's being induced more so probably as a result of um, probably cellular efficiency. So your, your mitochondria are probably making more free radicals as a consequence of energy turnover and without, you know, supporting that uh, internal antioxidant system, um, we start to see that dysfunction. So if the, the person's not, you know, supplementing with, uh, more so nutritionally from vitamin E, vitamin C, vitamin A, what, what the cell uses naturally to protect itself as a, a sacrificial molecule. Um, that's when the dysfunction sets in. Sure, sure. Yeah. I did actually find the uh, the study. I think I can I can send it to you in the chat here. Let me see. Did that pop up on your end there? It, it did, yeah. Let's open up here. So for people listening, title, long-term anabolic androgenic steroid use is associated with deviant brain aging. This was in 2021, so May 2021. Last year. And that, that's probably, if you, if you do like a PubMed study and you um, search related articles, I'm, I'm fairly certain that the Nandrolo one, if we even go down to the references, I think I read this last year. Yeah. Um, it referenced the, the paper about the. Uh... Yeah, so I'll definitely link this below for people interested, but you know, just a quick conclusion. The findings suggest long-term high dose AAS use may have adverse effects on brain aging, potentially linked to dependency and exaggerated use of AAS. So um, again, I'd you know, read the study, but it's just, it is just interesting to see more people talk about it and more of that coming out because I don't think that was really ever talked about other than, you know, people talking about like roid rage, you know, but I don't think people really ever talked about it before. Yeah. And I mean, the, what really sort of led me down this um, path of, of research was more so seeing that sexual dysfunction uh, post-use of like harsh androgens like Tremolone that we now have really high affinity for the androgen receptor and the potential, again, from animal research, the neurotoxicity that comes from these 19 nor testosterone derivatives that again is is that um dopamine issue post trembolone use as a consequence of destroying neurons that help with dopamine signaling so you're not transmitting dopamine as fast enough 
compared to the electrical potential issue. Um, without, you know, an accurate brain scan, you can't really say that, you know, that region of neurons are damaged or not. But it, this is sort of an area that I would really like to see um, androgen researchers start broadening their base into. But again, this, this would be more so research that's aimed towards um, not even safer use to, to um, offset use to try and educate and, you know, warn of the dangers mainstream that, these consequence the consequences of these compounds are they really worth um effectively like you said there a minute ago losing your mind yeah yeah do you think that because i i know you've talked before about um not just hey coming off anabolics but actually avoiding thrill-seeking behavior and things like that do you think that that's just kind of becoming this more like global issue with people because obviously more and more there's social media and tiktok like i i refuse to download tiktok and somebody said, uh, I forget uh, who it was, but they said, uh, they said, well, you know, no, you should download it. It's, it's really funny or you'd really like it. And to me, it's like, I'm not saying I wouldn't like it. I just don't want to go down that path because I'm already pretty obsessed with my phone. Like I'm always on my phone. Um, there's just always some stimulation or I feel like I could be listening to something, reading something. I want to always be productive. Um, yeah. So I have a hard time stepping back and actually setting time to like just be by myself or meditate or things like that, you know? Yeah, I'm probably the same type of personality. Um, it, it it definitely it definitely is the culture of the environment. Um, but again, you have to sort of view what what way you're you're utilizing that environment, like you said. So you're you're probably like me that you're probably on your phone all the time, but it's always from a learning objective. So you're you're looking at things on social media that add value to your life. That you're learning something new. You're reading something new. You're you're, you're in pursuit of knowledge as opposed to pursuit of constant entertainment and Correct, constant, yeah. you know, stimulation from a, an entertainment perspective. And so I think it really, it really depends on, I, I, again, is that a personality trait or is that, you know, just something that we understand we have this very powerful tool now that at our disposal, we've reached to millions of people that are sharing information daily that we can access and improve our lives with. Um, it's definitely, you know, it, 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 again, it's, it's such a, a broad thing to try and even consider because you might have the other side that someone, someone goes on androgen use and becomes like a sexual deviant and you have the other side where someone goes on androgen use and becomes the most productive entrepreneur you can imagine because of how driven their brain is at making right. these decisions towards um, being, you know, highly motivated, high vitality, wants to succeed as opposed to seeking out enjoyment from the other leisurely aspects of, of what dopamine brings. So definitely we, we are in a, an environment that unfortunately, yes, social media, phones, are, are going to be a part of, of our lives, but our children's lives. You know, I've got two young boys that I've often had this conversation with, with my wife that, you know, one's three and one's one that for as long as possible, I want my kids to remain kids. I don't want them to, to get sucked into the realm of social media from like, like we, we see now kids who are six, seven, eight, nine on TikTok and, you know, having phones and, and interacting through social media with phones that to me, we, we don't need to be, you know, upsetting their neurochemistry from that age of, of seeking that they have plenty of other realms of stimulation to, 
to to develop from that. It definitely it definitely adds to it that you have you know kids who are probably um, obtaining a, a a phone with social media at say age 12, 13. and by the time they reach sixteen, seventeen, they they fall prey to um, not so much image abuse, but that they feel they have to look this way, and they're looking at they're they're, they're training in gyms, and then they're looking at bigger guys who maybe you know. I often tell this anecdote on on podcasts, but like whenever I go train at the gym at my parents, my parents live about three hours from where we live. There's a, a high school, a secondary level school beside the gym, and one day I'd finished training, and I was getting changed. And this group of five, 16-year-olds came in. And as I was getting changed, one of them turned to me. And the first thing he said to me was, hey, mister, what do you take? <laughs> and, and, and I just stood there and I laughed. And I said, well, what makes you think that? And he goes, I just want to know what you take, mister. And I said, well, for one thing, I'm training 14 years. I've very rarely missed training and I've very rarely missed a meal. Can you guys say the same there? Oh yeah, but it's all about what you take. It's not, you know. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Take it from me. That's interesting. You want to, wow. you, you want to, you want to end up where I am, you know, in my early thirties, you know, at double your age, healthily. Forget about these things of what you take and what supplement and what what magic thing is there, because I said it doesn't exist, and all you're going down is a, yeah. a health trap. It's wild to think it starts that young. Like, cause I, I mean, and again, maybe that's a social media change, but I didn't really, I mean, I'm sure it existed in my high school, but I didn't really see it until college. I don't, I don't know anybody in high school who was doing it again. I'm sure it existed, but. Yeah. And even like, even for myself, I, I, I couldn't say to you like whatever it was, 17, 18 years ago when I was finishing our high school, uh, I could have said, oh, that guy in my year is clearly on steroids because there was no one. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the other harsh reality is had that person who'd come into the chain room been someone who had a different mindset to me and they were in that sort of drug culture or they, they sold steroids, if that, for all intents and purposes, child, 16-year-old, asks that person, what do you take? of a sudden you just take out a bag of stuff and go, oh, what do you want, lads? And it's, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's scary because it's that accessible as well. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we probably were, were in an era where it, it was sort of like a, a closed environment that was sort of like a, a who's who. And, you know, if any average person come in off the street into a gym and said, I'm looking to buy steroids to be thrown out of the gym. Right. right. It was almost like a, an, an inner circle thing of um, you're at that level of bodybuilding where guys went, okay, yes, uh, without any sort of reasoning to science, but they sort of went, okay, your physique is at a level that if you're considering this, then okay, we'll, we'll sort you with stuff. It's not like now where it's just like, what do you have? And right, what, can yeah. I, what, what can I buy from you? And all of a sudden you have 16 year olds taking Winstrol, Anavar, Danabol, you know, oral steroids, because they can just put the pot in their bag and their parents don't even know they're taking it. Right. Yeah. Um, like we had, we had a, a 17 year old, um, die in Ireland, um, in 2018, it was publicly announced all over the, the, uh, newspapers and media mm-hmm. was, uh, completing his, um, final exams to finish high school, to go to university. 
and had been doing uh, seven different types of sports on top of being like a high achieving student. And uh, secretly unknown to the parents have been taking Winstrol as a, an, an anabolic agent to, to help whatever he was told by whoever that would be a sport and performance compound and um, died of uh, a stroke um, huge amounts of oxidative stress to the brain. Now, is that because of the, the environment and the high stress because our, in Ireland, our like final student exams to finish high school to get into university is quite stressful. You have to, you know, study, eight subjects and you have exams on all eight subjects and it can be an extremely uh, tense time for um, those who want to achieve highly because it's based on a point system based on what your grades get each grade is worth x amount of points was it that stressful environment of the the school work with all the sporting um, and then the, the added use of winstrol pushed that oxidative stress in the brain beyond a point that was recoverable. We've got, you know, someone who may not be following nutritional strategies, supplemental strategies, et cetera. It, it becomes very murky there, but here we have a 17 year old who got open access to yeah. oral steroids without their parents even realizing until it was too late. Yeah. That that's crazy young. I mean, you know, and I, so what's the guy's name? Um, Dave Palumbo, I feel like kind of does a disservice sometimes because he's always saying there is genetics, it's genetics, and he almost discounts the use of these drugs. So I definitely don't want to come across like that at all. But man, if you're if you die of a stroke at 17, there's got to be some contributing factors there. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's it's uh, like I said, it's it's just worrying that that first hand experience of kids asking, what do you take? Um it's almost like where where's that behavior been learned? Like we said, where where are they getting that thought process of um, steroids or what create that physique? Um, when you know, we we should commend that it, there's open access here to knowledge surrounding. You know, it's not as taboo or there's, it's not as stigmatic as it was in the past. But is that sort of open use like we have guys who have vlogs on youtube you know taking out bottles and going well this is what i take mm-hmm. and this is the dose i'm using and look at me i'm in great health you have kids mirroring that where they go oh well, that guy is using 600 milligrams of trend you're thinking what you know it we we go on about um censorship and censorship that's surrounding social media now in, in the in current times that stuff like that you can't control it because that's that person's own life and that's that person's own choice. But we're, we're getting to a point where that, that behavior then on an influential scale, and this, this applies to, to anything that we see on social media towards influential behavior. Um, can we blame that person for being influential and doing what they want to do with their life versus, you know, someone deciding, well, I'm going to copy what that person's doing. It's, it's it's becoming a very difficult environment to control going forward for our um i guess for me anyway for my children's sake of you know what 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 is openly being allowed to be displayed that perhaps would have been behind closed doors you wouldn't have been you know you could have a vlogger like that living on your street and all of a sudden you're like oh well he uses steroids mm-hmm. you might not have even known 10 years ago that he was using steroids only because right. he was all over youtube earning money from that it's 
it's definitely uh, something that, you know, in, in terms of education, it's trying to get above that entertaining noise with, with a serious message to this younger generation of slow down, get, get the basics correct. And, and then, like I said, you know, at the start of the podcast, have the, the adult conversation of what's, what's potentially the most intelligent way or most maybe scientifically cor- correct way of going about this decision once you understand every avenue before you go down that road. Yep, for sure. Um, just circling back a little bit, you mentioned you have two young boys and I've seen some people who are enhanced talk about this myth of, uh, it seems like people who have used tend to have more girls and I've never seen any research on this at all. Um, do you think it's like completely bogus? I've seen some people put forth reasons as to why maybe that would be, but I, I have no idea. I, I've seen this and the whole girl myth and, uh, to, to make a joke, it, my wife w- would have liked a girl and, and the second child. And, um, I, she had me convinced that, that we were having a girl and the second child that okay. we, we, we didn't find out what we were having both times that. Uh-huh. Um, when our second son was born and, and he said it's a son I'm staring there going alright <laughs> <laughs> it, it like completely shocked taken aback like in my head going into to labour with my wife I was convinced that this wow, girl was going to so convinced back. it was a girl yeah, yeah, yeah just a completely different pregnancy to the first uh, complete okay. uh, complete different uh, in terms of even like hormone physiology and I, I was you know I was then convinced about five months into the pregnancy that you know this is like elevated estrogen in her body and the mm. elevated estrogen is coming from a, a female baby um <laughs> that the, the i often say this right do you ever, do you ever sort of not myth because i would never ever rule it out but um genetic issues of guys who are using like even trt yes we could probably extrapolate up to crazy anabolic steroid cycles that if you're causing oxidative stress your sperm is going to get oxidatively damaged and there's potential there for birth defects if that sperm wants to get damaged and pass its damaged dna to the egg um but again we've no we've no published data there towards that that you've got guys saying you know if you can see why you're on cycle there's going to be you know damage passed to the baby or to the fetus and without sort of, you know, going down the rabbit hole of, of epigenetics of what genes are actively being transcribed at the time that that sperm was produced and what epigenetic traits are within that DNA of that sperm. Um, without even doing, you know, research, you could never even say conclusively that you're damaging the, the, the health of that child by conceiving when on either. Regardless of the sex and the whole passing of the X and Y chromosome. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess there's nothing else out there, but um, but so you haven't seen any any evidence that it's one or the other. No, I've never I've never seen that. You know, obviously we we the the thing that controls basically whether we have a, a boy or a girl is our sperm towards the the egg. Sure. So um, it, it comes down to I think it's just it's just a common uh, coincidence that quote unquote we've got more top level bodybuilders having uh females than males yeah i don't know what is i don't know the breakdown for ronnie is like eight kids um it's mostly daughters i think but i'm not entirely sure yeah i've seen that i've seen that documentary um so 
and we're going just a little over an hour. I just want to ask you if you have time about your the supplement company. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm glad to hear. You know, you, you didn't say something like, "Hey, well, I have the supplement that's going to help all potential brain damage if you take anabolics or something." Right. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. um, so what are some of the supplements? Like, what is the goal behind the supplement company? You talked about, I guess, the development of it and kind of getting it off the ground. But what are you trying to achieve with it? So, I, I've never understood why. Well, probably I can't do. There is quite a lot of like charlatans to the supplement industry where people are like selling you snake oil and giving you all these health claims. I've been very open and transparent ever since my wife sort of pushed me onto social media about six years ago that if you're going to use supplements, for one thing, they're not an insurance policy. So they're they're never, ever going to prevent something from happening. What we're trying to leverage here is if there's... um, deficits to nutrition or deficits to uh, lifestyle uh, some certain supplements based on controlled research that's been done we can say potentially this may help alleviate or prevent in some shape or form future disease by supporting your body's own internal biochemistry I, i could never tell someone you know we we've like like i said we have a line of products that are designed to um target health such as like the cv stack which is for heart health the liver stack um which is to support how your bile flows through your liver and supports estrogen metabolism and a kidney and blood pressure stack called Astrag flow how how those three were sort of developed was looking at you know what what drives a lot of plaque formation and it'd be you know oxidative stress and oxidation of ldl and you know if you're not ensuring that you have adequate intake of vitamin E or other polyphenols in your diet. CV stack sort of fills that void. You know, you've got typical bodybuilders that eat chicken and rice and some green veg. There's no colorful fruit. There's, they're really missing out on some of the um, nuances to nutrition. So even then we can argue that certain supplements don't even fill the same void as whole food because of the food matrix. Sure. But we're trying to offer obviously a, a, a solution here that, you can augment potentially per nutritional practice or per lifestyle management with this supplement that has like 12 or 13 different antioxidants, a clinical dose of uh, vitamin E in terms of being both the tocopherols and tocotrienols. So when I started out, a lot of these formulas that arrived with supplement needs were actually protocols I was doing myself personally. And one of the things that drove me nuts was having to buy 15 or 16 different bottles from different online retailers and spending time in the morning going open that bottle open that and you're open up all these bottles to take one capsule or two capsules or whatever it was that it's like surely this needs to be easier that it's just one bottle all 13 of them are in one bottle and it's like four or five capsules and you're done up unscrew the bottle take out five take it not not just like spending 15 minutes opening all these bottles in the morning or spending an hour on a Sunday filling up pill pots. <laughs> that's what I do. And, <laughs> and that, that's where uh, that's where the CV stack uh, and the likes came from was this, there needs to be a solution here that we have one company, people go to it and go, right, CV stack has all these ingredients like CoQ10, astaxanthin, olive leaf extract, all these stuff that we know in the research help towards supporting LDL metabolism and, and offsetting oxidation. 
and helping with um, how your liver produces HDL, say, you know, like citrus bergamot and, and pantothene. And so having this sort of one-stop shop, as to speak, where this one brand catered for each sort of organ system, but applying that sort of functional health mechanistic perspective to the formulation as opposed to just throwing everything that you can possibly into the capsule and hoping something works mm. that there's a, a thought process behind each thing like even liver stack liver stack has uh, choline and inositol to help with fatty acids flowing across the liver and being cleared into the small intestine so you're you're trying to offset fatty liver disease with fatty acids building up in the liver you have ox bile and tudke again, for, for biliary control and to ensure that the bile, the viscosity of the bile stays normal and we're not getting crystallized cholesterol forming. And I mean, DIM and calcium deglucrate DIM to increase phase one estrogen metabolism so that we're pushing it over then for conjugation with the calcium deglucrate for excretion. And so applying that sort of mechanistic biochemistry to formulating the supplements themselves are all dosed based on what you sort of see in, in research as opposed to, oh, well, Tudka helps with, with bile flow. Uh, so let's put 250 milligrams. I mean, oh, like the, the sort of clinical level is way over 800, 900 mm-hmm. milligrams. Um, one of the big things like when I, when I joined Supplement Needs, even for formulating with, with Lee was if we're going to do these products, they're not going to be cheap. They're going to be like a premium level that the consumer knows first and foremost that it's dosed as high as it can possibly be and be as efficacious as it can possibly be. Because to me, it didn't make sense. Like someone thinking that they're taking 250 milligrams of Tudka is going to have um, the same extent as the, the clinical dose when supplement companies are selling you the 250 milligrams of Tudka at probably the same margin as where it would go at 800, 900 milligrams. So you start to see that supplement industry is very built on margins and um, consumer control. That, Of course, every business has to be profitable, but the profit wasn't really the main driver behind these supplements. It was the quality and the efficacy and then you start to see, obviously, uh, blood control and blood management. You start to see improvement of blood results from how these supplements were designed. That you then, you know, you know, you have a quality line that's trusted by thousands of people. That you're not relying on trying to make cheap money. That eventually someone turns around and goes, "Well, your products aren't dosed right," and then that company falls because he just right. cash up and get out as quick as possible. Um, so the whole idea was that we'd build a line, you know, and cater, you know, sort of organ by organ and look at the dysfunction towards health and how can we optimize each aspect. And this was more so for um, enhanced bodybuilders and then start to lead more into, you know, like general health. Mm-hmm. And now we have quite a lot of uh, private medical clinics within the UK who are, who are recommending our supplements before medicine in line with, you know, lifestyle management. Yeah. because of what they've seen in, in terms of the results. Um, and so, like I said, when I, when I sort of last year came to the, to the head that I could continue to be a, a chemical engineer, but with sort of the growth and how things were sort of progressing online and 
um, my sort of voice within the industry, it, it just made sense that to take that sort of leap and, and leave my, my sort of, I guess, cushioned career that I'd been in for so long and, and move my focus into what I was doing as a hobby with my full-time career to become like this full-time passion. Yeah. Because of the, I guess, the, the effects that I was seeing personally just as a, I guess, uh, again, like a hobby or just a, a, a side interest. Um, and I always laugh that when people often send a passion, you should always pursue your passions. It's only when you see that, you know, when you're, when you're involved with something from a hobby perspective and, and it brings you great passion, why, why shouldn't you not chase after that as a career? Um, and, you know, we were on holiday for two weeks there with our, our young boys. It was our first holiday, family holiday and since our, our first child was born. And that was the first time I said to my wife, I've got no, like, holiday dread where we got to, like, the last three days. You're like, oh, I have to go home because I have to, you know, go back to work, whatever. It was like, I, I actually can't wait to go home and get back to what I was doing. Because for literally for two weeks, I just ignored my phone and ignored my laptop. Mm. Um, whereas with my, my previous career, I would have kept on top of what was going on, even when away, so that there was no surprises when I got back that. Right. Just that switching off and then realizing, you know, I've got no dread. I've actually, you know, I, I love my job. And to, to say that, you know, with confidence and to really appreciate it is definitely something that um, I think everyone should come to a point where, you know, don't just do a job for the sake of it. You know, find find something that you are passionate about and then try and try and pursue it as, as much as possible. Yeah, I, I think it's great when, you know, you can make that happen. Um, it's funny, my friend and I, we each have our own practice and we, we joke about like the Sunday scaries because, you know, like, like my Monday is a 12 hour day and that's the longest day of the, the week for me. And then it gets gradually better. And I actually, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have my career and I, I really enjoy it, but there's definitely something to be said for going from like a Sunday kind of hanging out. And then it's like 12 hours of patient care. It's a lot. And yeah. I'm actually taking a full vacation in a week, which will be the first time since having my practice that I'm stepping away for a whole week. So we'll see how I do with it mentally, <laughs> but it's, it's nice to be in a position where you, you can enjoy actually going back to it. Yeah, no, definitely. And just even just to, when you, when you realize that when you take that break, how, how passionate you are to, to get back to that level of work. Um, and again, just from that, from that like type of personality in the past, I would have never done that sort of I'm not okay I, I have my phone on holiday and that's my own personal use but in terms of work emails or interactions I think I checked my emails twice one evening when the boys went to bed early and we were just chilling out on our balcony mm. I had a quick look and then put the laptop away didn't you know entertain it any further it was more so moving forward moving like mails into you know need to reply when back folders that I had a, a yeah, nice yeah. list for when I got back um that you you appreciate you know what, what you're doing at that current time that's awesome man well um, of course i'll have a link i'm sure there's a, a nice website for the supplements and everything i'll have a link yeah. to your instagram as yeah. well amazing if, if anyone wants to go like the, the website is uh, supplementneeds.co.uk and i'll give you my my discount code is dr dean so they'll, they'll save 10 percent off the whole website with that awesome so other than the website and your instagram anywhere else people should find your stuff um we started a, an education platform um last year we so we're coming up to one year and that was sn education that was the education branch of supplement needs mm. 
And that, that stemmed from um, originally just to discuss the products, to, to put just a consumer resource to, to educate on what the products do. So if anyone is listening and you want to see what CV stack does or liver stack does, SN Education has product videos where I talk in depth of you know, what this ingredient does and uh, why potentially you might take it. But also from a, a, an education perspective where I put together a team of what I consider um, experts or educators that have high level qualifications in different areas like uh, training, biomechanics, uh, chiropractic, female health, um, myself with sort of my, my chemical and pharmacology and functional medicine and drugs, just a resource that every month we, there's uh, seven educators and we each produce, you know, two pieces of content each month where it's, it's like delivered in a lecture format. So we're trying to bring almost like a higher level platform, higher level education platform where someone can learn um, about steroids or about female health in like a, a lecture setting. So you're, you're almost upskilling yourself rather than someone just talking face to face with a camera it's more, it, it is more professional in that you're following along with a lecture and you're taking notes and right and listening to me, just talk to the camera for five yeah, minutes. Yeah. Cool, man. That's awesome. So yeah, we'll, we'll have, is there like, that's a website as well, or is it part of the main? That, that, that's a website, sneducation.co.uk. Cool, cool. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thank you very much, Dave.